Welcome to Legville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Legville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Legville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. The second wave of support comes from our sponsors, places and products we sincerely, truly love. The first is Elsa's. In the 90s, a Scandinavian woman took a cab from Toronto to Montreal and opened a bar in the Plateau Montréal. The rest is history. Perhaps the best place in Montreal, if not the world, to have a lively conversation, a good drink, and some great food, Elsa's wants you to enjoy each other. Also sponsoring the podcast is Good Mix. Good Mix includes a wide range of prebiotic fiber, which promotes microbial diversity in the gut flora. You can get 15% off your next purchase of Good Mix at Amazon and at goodmixfoods.com by using the code LIKEFILL when you check out online. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevillepodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. So welcome to the Likeville Podcast. Uh, today, this is John Faithful Hamer. I am very honored to be talking with Adam Gopnik. Uh, who is a staff writer for The New Yorker. He's a fellow Montrealer, uh, all sorts of fabulous things. Welcome, Adam. Wonderful to be with you, John. Yeah. So glad we put this together. Yeah. So uh, why don't you, you've done a million things, so why don't you sort of introduce yourself to our listeners, how you would sort of self-identify. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, it, uh, it, wow, that's how you self-identify. Do I have to give my pronouns, too? <laughs> no, um, no, 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 that's let good. Me... <laughs> Let me think. I'm a Montrealer. Montreal is my hometown. Amen. Not born, born in Philadelphia, as it happens, but grew up in Montreal. Uh, went to McGill. Uh, met my wife of many years there. Um, uh, still live and die. More die than live these days with the Montreal Canadiens. But and never missed. Never missed uh, Montreal Expo's home opener for 15 years. Nice. Um, so deep Montrealer. Um, then I came to New York in 1980. Be- Came eventually a staff writer, as you said, at the New Yorker magazine, where I've been for uh, almost 35 years now. And um, I also write books, and I write um, uh, musical theater from time to time. And I most recently, under the unusual exigencies of American uh, political crisis, I've written a political book. Most of my books in the past have been collections of linked essays about uh, family life or about Darwin and Lincoln or about food. But uh, I decided that I had, it sounds a little pompous, but I'm not sure how to put it more um, modestly. I had a kind of civic obligation to try and organize my own feelings about the political crisis that the world is in uh, for the benefit of my daughter directly and uh, her generation indirectly. And that became the book, A Thousand Small Sanities, the moral Adventure of Liberalism, which is, I think, um, what, uh, as the kids say, triggered you to invite me on. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a fantastic book. I mean, I it it's fantastic in many in many ways. But just you know, kind of from the outset, one of the things that just astounded me about the book is that you know, in my classes, I I try and teach students how to 
um, steel man their opponent's arguments and how to mm. you know don't engage, don't just sort of set up these these straw man arguments where you're you're creating a position that nobody that you're attributing that position. You know, I mean, neoliberalism right. is a perfect example, which you point out in your book, uh, and then attributing these things to them that nobody actually believes or says, right. or, or or it's just a couple kind of crazies that say that. You, I, I do not know of anybody else, and, and I, I read a lot. I, I don't know anybody else who steel mans as well as you. Like you, actually, in well, in the in the chapter, you know, why the right hates liberals. You present the various strands of the conservative critique of liberalism better than ninety percent of <laughs> the conservatives I know do so. And well, then in your chapter, Why the Left Hates Liberals, you present the progressive critique of liberalism better than 90% of the progressives that I that I know. It's really kind of amazing. Well, that's incredibly um, uh, kind of you to say, and it puts you, it's, you put your finger exactly on what was a central ambition for this book. I didn't want it to be exactly a polemic, uh, uh, that made uh, that scored points cheaply. I really wanted to engage with the arguments on the other side at the highest level that I could address them. And I've been reading that stuff all my life, John. I mean, I, I think I know it pretty well. And in a, in another broader sense, I think that um, uh, I don't know how to put this well. The the what separates literature from political polemic is exactly the test of empathy. Uh, whether you can actually engage in a fairly full way with people who don't share your views to be, you know, to use the, the highest example we have, that's was Shakespeare's greatest gift was whenever he started writing a character, he never asked, where does this character fit in my moral universe? He asked, where does that character fit in his moral universe or her? You know, that's why all the villains in Shakespeare are always full of perfectly rational self-justifications for their behavior. Yeah. So I wanted to do that. I wanted very much to do that. And I'm glad you, I think that I largely succeeded, I will say vainly, but I did it genuinely because not just as an intellectual exercise, but as a, as a kind of act of empathy. For instance, in the chapter on the, on why the left hates liberalism, I picked out Emma Goldman as a kind of key leftist. Now, Emma Goldman began as a Marxist, was really an anarchist, no friend of any kind to liberalism. But what an extraordinary mind, what a wonderful writer, what an amazing human spirit. And just being able to revive her as a figure for my daughter's generation, for Olivia's generation, was, um, uh, you know, hugely meaningful for me. And there's also a kind of, uh, I don't know how to put this well, there's a kind of moral gambit uh, implicit in, in those acts of empathy, which is recognizing that you don't have a monopoly on virtue or truth that there are lots of reasonable um, assaults. The funny part about it all is one of the shocking things you discover when you write a book that's in some way about politics is that everyone reviews the politics and nobody reviews the book. Yeah. In other words, nobody yeah. says, um, I don't agree with this guy, but as you just very generously did, but he does a very good job of summing up the contrasting views and arriving at his own. They, they People judge the book exactly in terms of how many micrometers you are from the political ground they occupy. And you can be a few micrometers to the left or to the right, and you're a villain. 
in that way. Well, but, I, I, I found I listened to a number of the the interviews that you did you know, right. concerning the book, and I I read a couple of the the reviews were well, as is so often the case with book reviews these days. I mean, it didn't used to be the case when I was in my late teens and twenties, but you know, maybe I'm just turning into an old fart, but I, I, I don't know. I'm like, I'm 45 now. And I find that book reviews have never sucked more than they do now. Like half of them, I feel like the author uh, hasn't really read the book. They've sort of skim read it. And then, right. uh, and the, the reviews of, yeah, the reviews of this book were especially bad. And, uh, and I, I did find actually some of the conversations, even with somebody who, who's, seems to sort of mean well, um, you know, Ezra Klein. I, I, I didn't, I, I felt like he didn't really, because a lot of the things that he brought up to you in the interview, you answer in the book quite clearly. So, but, but anyway, whatever, leaving that alone. Uh, yes. But, no, no, no. You know, I can't complain. I'll be honest. Look, John, I got, I get, because I have a relatively public profile, I get all the attention I deserve. I get to speak my mind with Chris Hayes or Ezra Klein or you I'm not, you know, I am not uh, neglected and I com- never complain about anything that's uh, that's said. The thing that's funny, though, I will I will add and I will add in addition, I've been doing this for 35 years and I've been around uh, the bend. We write our books not for reviewers, but for readers. Yes. And the astonishing thing you find out over time is that there's a kind of initial kind of thicket of reviewers you step around and through with a mixture of of pleasure and pain. And then in short order, the book is in the hands of the readers. And those are the people who make a difference. Those are the people who sustain its reputation. Those are the people you care about. But what I was going to say is the is that because I, I love your expression, steel man, the, the, the counter positions at length, um, some of the, re- the reviewers on the extreme left and extreme right uh, basically believe that somebody else must have interpolated those arguments in because I'm so wrong, obviously, that how could I have mastered the right arguments, right? Yeah. So that my Marxist daughter must have instructed me on all the left-wing <laughs> arguments or my Heideggerian son must have instructed me on the right-wing arguments. And the idea that you could genuinely engage in somebody else's point of view without agreeing with it, but with trying to um, do it all the justice that you can is, if I may say, a distinctly liberal idea that's extremely alien to a lot of discourse right now. Yeah, no, it, it absolutely is, and I, I think there's a there's a deep kind of humanism to it, and it's it's absolutely important. And you mentioned Obama, and you mentioned a couple of other people, but I actually the the presence that I felt behind a lot of your your ideas was strangely enough was sort of Leonard Cohen because you know Leonard Cohen has this you know of course you know you're you're a homeboy Montrealer yeah you understand like his whole thing like beware of what comes out of Montreal and that that whole poem right where he talks yes. about um and he he has this notion of of the church right and i kept like sort of writing you know in the in the comments on the side in the margins of your book that your idea of the liberal society, the the pluralistic, open liberal society, very much resembles Leonard Cohen's idea of the the church. You know, and so I just I, I had it here. He says, "Well, that's a beautiful, uh, yeah, that's a beautiful thought." Leonard Cohen means uh, it's a spooky for me that you say that. Leonard Cohen has always meant a lot to me. Has come to mean more and more to me with each passing year. If I could have picked out an epigraph for this book, it might very well have been those great lines: "Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything." 
Yeah. That's how the light gets in. That's, Wait, well, is, that's the, I, I actually, I got it out because I wanted to tell you, uh, read it and tell me, tell me if you think this, this resonates with you. So he says that uh, we who belong to this city have never left the church. The Jews are in the church as they are in the snow. The most violent atheist radical defectors from Le Parti Québécois are in the church. Every style in Montreal is the style of the church. The winter is in the church. The Sun Life building is in the church. Long ago, the Catholic church became a pebble beside the rock on which the church was founded. The church has used winter to break us, and now that we are broken, we are going to pull down your pride, the pride of Canada and the pride of Quebec, the pride of the left and the pride of the right, the pride of muscle and the pride of heart. The insane pride of your particular vision will swell and explode because you have all dared to think of killing people. The church despises your tiny works of death, and the church declares that every man, woman, and child is protected. This, yeah, this, <laughs> this is, I, I was like, this even more than that sign that Olivia pointed out on that super right. progressive church uh, on, you know, I imagine. Well, in Wellfleet, yes, yeah, in yeah. Wellfleet. I, I think this, Leonard Cohen's poem on Montreal, it, it seemed to encapsulate his idea of the church it seems, it seemed to me like that's what you sort of had in common, in, in mind with the the liberal society as being uh, a society where everybody recognizes that you're not going to kill or exile your enemies. You're going to have to live with them after the election, after the changes. And so how do you live in peace with people that you disagree with? I'm not, that, that's, that's beautiful. That's a wonderful Cohen poem. Cohen, as I said, um, Leonard, as we like to call him, right, yeah. means uh, uh, an enormous amount to me, both by, uh, you know, genealogy and uh, by practice. I had the great um, thrill of um, uh, speaking at the Shar a couple of times in the last few years, you know, his synagogue in Westmount, sure, the Shar, sure. Shemaya, yeah. and I gave the, I think it was called the Leonard Cohen Lecture there, actually, which was a kind of early draft of the liberalism book. So I felt very connected in that way. I wonder, you know, as we talk about that, John, how much the experience of growing up in Canada and more specifically and more importantly in Montreal affected, uh, has affected my vision of, of things exactly in the way that Leonard uh, articulates so beautifully there. I think that it's true that if you grow up in a city which is kind of born divided, born with a great crack right down yeah. the center of the street. You learn the virtues of um, cooperation. You learn the virtues of coexistence. You learn the virtues of pluralism early on in a very practical way. You learn to speak two languages. You learn yeah. to uh, you learn to struggle along in that way. You know, one of my favorite memories of uh, uh, my youth is was in the seventy six. Uh, uh, referendum campaign. I went to a, a French language rally for the Federalist side, and they uh, sang O Canada at the end of it in French. And when you got past O Fleur Glorieuse, carton porte le pays, c'est porte la croix, ton histoire est une pépée des plus brillants exploits. And at that point, the entire was in the forum. All 18,000 francophone federalists fell silent because they didn't know the rest of the words in French <laughs> because they had only ever heard them in English because that's as you as you know is where the the anthem breaks off 
when, you know, Roger Doucet of Blessed Memory or whoever is singing it in the, in the Forum of the Bell Center, that's how far you get in French, and then you switch into English. So no Francophone <laughs> knew the rest of O Canada oh, in that so way. That's so funny. That's and that's, so... <laughs> a, that's a memory, right? We were all acculturated to accept with all of the problems, differences, occasional acts of violence, uh, the rubbing back and forth with uh, You're Too Young to Remember, Bill 101, and so on. Nonetheless, at the end of the day, that was how we live. That's how Montreal um, exists. Uh, and you know, one of the things I say in the book, and I think it's terribly, is for me, is terribly important, is that uh, uh, human beings are actually quite good at those kinds of practices of coexistence. Uh, most places in the world, most of the time, that involve the uh, the mutual presence of many different faiths or tribes, get along. You know, R Rwanda doesn't happen every day. Yeah. But it's precarious. It's precarious. It's, you know, Jews and Muslims and Christians live in the Middle East for a long time in Lebanon or uh, the, you know, Palestine once upon a time. Uh, and then suddenly it breaks into a round of massacre and counter massacre. And all that liberalism is for me is the, the attempt to make that practice of coexistence exemplified by uh, singing the national anthem at the forum is to make that practice of coexistence into a principle of pluralism that can survive, that can be uh, uh, hard enough to endure, and that's what it. That's uh, and that's what that book, this book, is about. Yeah, I, I find one of the things that comes out of growing up in Montreal is that Montreal is one of the the last real cities. Like it's a real city, and, and what I mean by that is is a lot of things, but. One of one of them is that you know, like Paris and New York and Singapore, um, it's it's a real city in the sense that there's a, a critical number of people who live there who were born there who cannot imagine living anywhere else. Mm -hmm. Who can yes. say like Machiavelli, "I love my native city more than my own soul." There's a, there's a critical number of people in Paris who I, I love Paris and I. I you know, I feel totally at home in Paris. I feel totally at home in Singapore or New York. And it's because they're real cities. And I feel, and this is always something which, uh, which I, I find when I talk to other people, and you're, you're totally in this camp, who are kind of city-state advocates, uh, it's, I feel way more of a connection to, to Montreal than I do to Canada, or yeah. to, although I do feel uh, an allegiance to, to Canada, and I feel like way more of an allegiance to Montreal than Quebec, um, but I find that real kind of urban city people tend to see each other more clearly than, <laughs> than people who are part of various kind of nationalist projects. So I, I get Parisians, and they get me immediately. Like right. New Yorkers, I get them immediately. Like Singaporeans, I get so there is this weird kind of city-state thing, and I, I I wonder like if if you ever considered sort of writing something on this because you clearly are on that page. Totally, it's a great subject. I've written a lot over the years about cities, about yes, city life, have, both yeah. from the point of view of sociology and from the point of view of urban urban planning. Jane Jacobs and so on. I had a piece. I think my last long piece in the New Yorker was about the perils of public housing a couple of weeks ago. So absolutely, I agree with you. It, it, two, you know, kind of two things I'd I'd say in response because it's, it's I think a, a profound area of reflection. One is I think it's absolutely true that cities are the unit for most of us, for some of us, for me and you, who that are cap we're capable of feeling patriotic about. 
uh, it's easy for me to imagine enlisting in an army to save Montreal. Absolutely. I, you know, yeah. I, and very hard to, um, throw my arms around and cuddle the abstraction of Canada. I could do it in a minute about Montreal. My book, Winter, I talk about how uh, Montreal means winter for me. Mm -hmm. And it means snow and it means hockey. And those are things that are deep and dear to my heart. At the same time, I will confess the sin of having committed adultery with a couple of other cities in my lifetime. New York, most of all, but Paris for almost a decade and still in my heart as well, those other two great cities. And you're right that they all have something in common. They all are real cities. That's partly in, in a physical geographic feature. They're all relatively compressed, unlike uh, uh, Toronto or even London in another way. Those you know, were tightly compressed cities, New York mm -hmm. and Paris and Montreal. They all are kind of miracles of coexistence. You can't believe that people are able to get along. They all have Paris, at least. New York, too, to some degree, have violent histories. The only thing I'd add to that reflection, and it's been a long time coming for me, because if you'd spoken to me five years ago, I would have spoken up for um, cities. And one of the books that's in the back of my mind to write sometime is about the Italian Renaissance. When I started off, like oh, I was an Italian <laughs> Renaissance scholar, you know, that's what I did my, my graduate degrees in. And I've always thought the idea of the city state in uh, the Italian Renaissance, Florence, Siena, Venice, are, is uh, fascinating to me. I'm writing something about Venice um, this just as we're speaking here. I mean, not literally as we're talking, but <laughs> wrapped wrapped around it. But I've come to realize that the health of a city like Montreal does depend to a remarkable degree on the health of the the nation that it sits in. You know, I did the uh, this year in Toronto. I did the um, the Baldwin or rather they call it the La Fontaine Baldwin Lecture, yes. which is a lecture that's devoted, John Ralston Saul founded, yeah. and it's devoted to the tradition, the example of La Fontaine and Baldwin, which I inserted into the, the liberalism book in 2000 Small Sanities. And not even enough Canadians know about that moment when those the leader of Upper Canada, forgive all my ringing here, the leader of Upper Canada and the leader of Lower Canada in the 1830s stood together to say French and English. A beautiful, beautiful moment. I, I teach a class yeah. on the history of Montreal and I make uh -huh. sure I make sure all of my students know about that uh, that story. It's, it's a just, founding oh, moment of Canada. Beautiful, it's a beautiful. fantastic story. It's nonviolent. They don't start a war. They don't run an army. They just stand there and they endure it together. And on that basis of peaceful coexistence, Canada really begins. Um, so giving... Uh, uh, giving this lecture, I, you know, uh, I, it seems to me that that we Montreal prospers because it sits within the fabric of the country that Baldwin and LaFontaine imagined. Um, and it has the, the kind of tensile strength of a much larger, uh, political, uh, unit. That's one of the paradoxes. One of the tensions of modernity, of course, is that we love our cities. And yet, you know, we're talking about Renaissance cities. They all collapsed into tyranny. They all uh, none of the, the, neither the Florentine nor the Venetian Republic could survive indefinitely against the power of the nation state. So the idea of the liberal nation is a kind of, how to put it, this is an inelegant in, in metaphor, but it's like the styrofoam chips that protect the fragility of, uh, of the great liberal city. But this is a long way around to say, I completely share your sense of Montreal as a real city. And one of the fantasies that Martha, my very Montreal wife, and I continue to play out is, is that when life in, in the United States becomes truly intolerable, <laughs> um, we will come back and, and find a place in the old city and, uh, 
you know, uh, return to uh, our life on the as uh, ice skaters. <laughs> but there's a couple of claims that you make in this book that I want to ask you about. One of them is you say that, uh, and this is something that touched me quite, uh, you know, closely because I I've been guilty of this in the past in my twenties, but um, that there's this. This feeling, especially we saw this with the Bloc Québécois, we see it with Québec Solidaire and things like that, where uh, that sort of if you flirt with nationalism and if you flirt with essentialism, that you can achieve all these kind of progressive ends. If you just, if you can yeah. harness the sort of, it's almost in Lord of the Rings terms, you know, like sort of digging yes. and getting that Balrog, you know, if you can harness the energy, these, these sort of deep, primal energies that are tapped into by essentialism uh, and by nationalism that you can then sort of focus these in towards progressive ends. And, and if, if your book, uh, you know, a thousand small sanities has a couple of sort of very, very clear, you know, warning signs, uh, it's that uh, this is a bad idea that this is actually that uh, essentialism is, is no friend to progressives. Can you sort of, Absolutely. That's a key. That's a key concept. It's fascinating to me that you mentioned Tolkien because I'm a huge Tolkienite. Uh, I come from a family of Tolkienites. My little brother, Blake, who's a very fine art writer, um, actually was so Tolkien infatuated that he taught himself Elvish, Quenya, as oh you actually called. <laughs> and he was a fluent Elvish speaker as that's a uh, as a wild. teenager. So yeah. I and I think part of the grandeur of Tolkien, who was, uh, was a devout Roman Catholic and a very uh, conservative figure in lots of ways, was to put his finger on that as a sort of foundational treachery of the soul that we think, I can make the ring work for me. Yeah, that's what exactly. all the, all that's what Saruman thinks. Remember the, the, the white wizard who goes wrong. He thinks, I, I know that it's done evil in the past, but I can make this ring of power work for me. And exactly yeah. as you say, I think that's one of the risks of contemporary Progressivism, you think um, identity, you know, they take the form of identity politics. Nationalism uh, has had a horrific uh, history, but we can use nationalism. We can use that sense of common identity to do good progressive work. Uh, you can it's it's reflected in the way that, as I talk about in the book, that we have um, the notion that we can talk about um, uh, white identity. We can talk about um, uh, in, in the United States. Obviously, I'm talking we can talk about. Uh, 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 women's philosophy, not just about feminism as an essential political movement, but about uh, feminist philosophy as a thing onto itself. Um, we can ask the question, not um, what's the value of the idea or the argument you're proposing, but who is the person who is making this argument, right? If it's uh, coming from a white man, it has a different value as an argument than if it's coming from a Latina woman. Not just that it it's obviously has a different genealogy, which is self-evident, but that the argument has a value that depends on the person who's making it. And as I try and say in the book, that's not just uh, one reactionary argument. That's like the core idea of what it is to be reactionary. That's where you get the idea of Jewish physics yeah. in Nazi Germany. It's where you get the idea that there's in, in France at the time of the Dreyfus affair, the idea that there's a true France and then there's a Jewish France. There's a corrupted Jewish France and we have to sort out Jewish France in order to get the, the true France. It's an idea that has a long history, tragically, in Quebec as well. And there's, a, there's a, I think, a, a, a positive kind of nationalism that comes out of self-assertion, out of 
shared history, shared shared values. And then there's this other negative kind, and you found it in Quebec nationalism, certainly in in my youth, where if you come from outside the tribe, you can't really understand the arguments. Now, to his great credit, René Levesque and the first generation of the Parti Québécois recognized that risk and rejected it, and rejected it strongly. They never, uh, at the most, they flirted with the idea that there were sort of two categories of Quebec citizens. And on the whole, and it was why they lost the referendum, they recognized that an Anglophone Quebecer was as much of a Quebecer uh, as a Francophone Quebecer, that an immigrant Quebecer uh, was as much of a Quebecer as a Purlin Quebecer. They didn't like it. They didn't always want that. They resented it, but they recognized it. And that was one of the reasons why um, Quebec nationalism was, on the whole, I think, a, a positive uh, episode yeah. in that way. Well, but, there's there's one thing that I, I kept thinking, because I, I basically temperamentally and, and probably, you know, ideologically agree with you on that. I just went, I was thinking of a, a major objection to it, which is, of course, Robert Putnam's recent work where he's, which I, you know, I, I got to say for, for liberals and pluralists, his most recent research has been very disturbing. I mean, a lot of people are sort mm -hmm. of just trying to ignore it or if they, if they're trying to, but you know, what, what he's demonstrated and others have replicated his research is that when you increase diversity in a community, um, it, it tends to reduce social trust and it tends to reduce support for social welfare programs, for progressive yeah. policies. So uh, Putnam's point is that there may be there may be a, a kind of a trade-off that has to be made for progressives where if you're going to say diversity is an unqualified good and we should the more diversity the better uh, and like you know this is all fantastic um well okay you can you can have diversity and you can have uh, progressive support for kind of social generous i, I love your rather than saying uh, a a a social a a safety net that you say it's more like a blanket that is a beautiful a much more effective <laughs> as somebody who you know my mom was uh, a single mom on welfare till i was 14 and it well, definitely felt more like a blanket than a safety than net. A net yeah <laughs> it, it, it well, felt like you know allowing us to live lives of dignity even though we didn't have a lot of money but um but right. what do you think about that? That kind of it's a terrific it's a terrific question. As you know, Putnam is one of my heroes. He comes I up know. in the course yeah, of, yeah. of this book because he did that wonderful early work and uh, on uh, the relationship between I, I hate the phrase social capital, but yeah. that's the one that's usually used: social capital and democratic institutions. And he showed in that work in Italy that um, you could predict how well a community was going to take to democratic institutions, not in terms of their legal commitment to it, but in terms of the existing institution of social trust. If there were a lot of amateur opera societies around, then uh, democratic institutions would take. If people had the habit, in other words, of cooperating with people, other people not of their kind or clan um, in non-political situations, then they would learn how to do it. Then it would be easy for them to learn how to do it in political ones. And that's a profound and powerful truth yes. that's been uh, replicated and reinstantiated and redemonstrated over and over again. I don't know a more profound political truth, and it's still one that sometimes isn't uh, fully uh, absorbed. I prefer, as I say in the book, 
the phrase that Frederick Law Olmsted, the great designer of Central Park, had for the same concept. He called it commonplace civilization. Mm-hmm. He said, the stronger your commonplace civilization, the stronger your uh, democratic civilization will be. But you're absolutely right that in recent years, Putnam has done this, this other work, which we can't embrace with quite the same uh, readiness that we embrace his work there. Um, you know, David Frum, who was uh, one of the the friendly critical commentator, someone from whom I have respect, although we come at the world from very different directions, uh, has written that and gotten a lot of flack for writing that, basically saying if if liberals, I, in the broad sense, if liberals and conservatives don't deal with the crisis of immigration, then uh, the population will turn to fascists to deal with it for them, that that's what's happened in America. And it's also, you know, uh, one standard explanation for Brexit that panic about diversity, as you say, panic about immigration in particular, leads people who would otherwise not embrace authoritarian ethnic nationalism to embrace it. Uh, And therefore, and Frum makes the argument, therefore, that we have to be uh, realistic and responsive to that truth. We can't, though we might have, you know, dream of a kind of ideal cosmopolitanism where we are all global citizens, and all citizens of the globe or should be at home where we are, that that's uh, what the French call angelism. It's it's an unreal, angelic, utopian view of the world. Um, the thing I'd say in response to that, and Putnam's work is, as you say, is robust. It's, you know, a, you know, much replicated, is that it does seem, accepting that is true, that the places that enjoy the greatest diversity, certainly the greatest presence of immigrants, to come back to our subject from a moment ago, big cities like New York or London um, have the least difficulty with uh, with difference. They tend to be the least inclined to vote for Brexit or to vote for a Donald Trump. And it's in places like uh, in rural regions or Akron, in Wisconsin, Akron, Ohio. Yeah, exactly. Where there are no. Well, Akron, there actually are some. But in large parts of rural Wisconsin, where there are essentially no Somalian immigrants, that those are the places where people become most paranoid about the idea of Mexican immigration, the Mexicans coming over the border. Um, And it's certainly true that in London, which has in the space of my lifetime gone from being a relatively homogenous city to a wildly diverse city, London does not support Brexit, not just the the immigrant population or the sons and daughters of immigrants, but the the homogenous, the old, old homogenous population doesn't. So I think that the that the story is complicated. But I don't think that the idea we we can be cosmopolitans without being universalists. You know, we can uh, embrace as many uh, kinds as we can without believing necessarily that people's desire to regulate immigration diversity is in itself inherently fascistic. It's one of the things that I you know found uh, disturbing about the debates in the Democratic Party uh, in these past six months is that the idea of open borders, right, which the, some of the Democratic candidates seem to flirt with, even if they don't openly embrace it, is political poison. It's it's political poison. And there's nothing to be said in terms of conducting pragmatic pro- progressive politics for uh, dosing yourself with political poison needlessly. Yeah, I, I cringed when there was uh, Rachel Maddow at the last debate when she asked 
the I think she started off with Elizabeth Warren, and she she started off with a, there was a question, and it was something along the lines of like, um, would you dismantle parts if if parts of the wall had been constructed along the Mexican border, would right. you after getting elected dismantle those parts of the wall? And I thought, okay, horrible horrible question, but like, yeah. and then she just. I was just, I was like, oh, God, Elizabeth, what are you doing? Like, she, and then she said, yes, I would. And I was like, that, okay, I understand, you know, saying don't build the wall because, yeah, right. it, it's a dumb thing to do. But if, if they have actually built some of the wall, which they haven't very much at all. No, but, I was going to say, it doesn't, yeah, they it haven't, doesn't really fact, exist. But if it right. had, why would you say that? Like, wh- what do you think you're going to gain from saying this? That you're going to dismantle it? Why? Like, <laughs> like it, most of it doesn't exist. And if it's, it's just playing right into the... It's giving hostages to Trump. And yes. it's a sort of some despair to me to see, uh, instead of at a moment of absolute crisis, and I say that without um, uh, any undue hysteria, this is the worst crisis in American history since the... Since 1864, since the Civil War, you have an overt, aggressive authoritarian in power who has contempt for all of the, not just the traditions and the norms, as people like to call them, but for the premises of liberal democracy. And at this moment, we should be creating the broadest possible coalition of kinds to oppose him. And instead, we're engaging in these wildly unreal indulgences I'm repeating indulgence there, but it, we're, we're engaged in these wildly unreal indulgences in self-destructive, needlessly self-destructive politics. Barack Obama came out of hiding long enough to try and say that, uh, uh, and he was right to try and say it. But, you know, um, you sometimes have the tragic feeling that uh, Democratic Party politics in, in America are being run by a uh, you know, my Twitter feed, the people on my Twitter feed. And that's, that's, that's not a good idea. You know, it was, it was like when Christian Gilbrand, who's now out of the running, stepped up and said, my special ability is that I can explain to all those white working class people in Wisconsin and Michigan, the nature of their white privilege. Oh God. Oh my (laughs) God. Yeah, I know. That was just so cringeworthy. I I think I puked in my mouth when I read that. Yes. when and I thought, oh, that'll work. Yeah, That's yeah, work. that'll do We're it. Gonna, yep, that that will turn their <laughs> minds around because you'll explain to all of these white working class people whose lives they've experienced them from inside are ones of struggle and difficulty that they've been wildly privileged all their lives, and they should stop feeling so complacent. Yeah. I, I, you kind of feel helpless <laughs> in the face of that kind of of that kind of foolishness, which is foolish both pragmatically, obviously, but it's also as I talk about in the book is foolish intellectually. You know, one thing in that I, I, you know, I try and deal as you know, in the book with the whole question of privilege. And one of the things I try and say about it is, is that wh- however you want to deal with the, the analysis of more and less privilege, you know, that it's political poison because no human being feels in themselves. Uh, maybe there's someone somewhere, maybe the Aga Khan understands that, that he was privileged, <laughs> but most, the overwhelming majority of citizens of a democracy don't feel themselves to be privileged because the stories that they know and the stories that they've learned from their parents, the story you just sketched for me, the story I could sketch for you about uh, my own uh, family history, which began with a couple of, you know, illiterate, non-English speaking immigrants arriving in in this country, as they still called it, 
are stories of purpose. They're not stories of privilege. Mm -hmm. What is true, as I say in the book, is that some of us are blessed with good fortune and some are cursed with less good fortune. Those of us who have good fortune have a moral obligation to share it, not hoard it. That's that's a, a moral injunction that not only is right to make, it's, it's one that you can successfully make. If you tell people who have good fortune, look, you know, you've been lucky and you ought to share it. You should share it through your taxes. You should share it through uh, good works. You should share it through philanthropy. You should share it through uh, acts of empathy with people who don't have as much good fortune as you do. That's a positive and that's a workable um, social policy. Telling people you're privileged, so therefore your words have no value and your um, – Acts are all corrupt. This is not. Yeah, it's a con- it's a conv- <laughs> conversation ender right there. Ender, I yes. mean, when you tell people, I mean, my mom just told us that all the time when we were growing up. To whom much is given, much is required. To whom right. much is given, much. And so, and that that's a generous idea. It, it kind of taps into into some really deep moral emotions and to some nice places. But but yeah, I mean, the, the language of privilege it tends to tap into into something something uglier that tends to sort of shut people down it's uh, but you know just just to touch on something you mentioned just before it, it, something that strikes me it's always struck me about your your writing and your your work in general is that for a liberal jewish atheist you have a very sort of Christian Augustinian tragic view of the world it's like you have it like friends i mean you can see that in this book where you say and i, I I think you're completely right about this, but it's a kind of a dramatic claim, I think, for a lot of people that that Trump may be an American exception, but he is the human default. Can you sort of explain yeah. what you mean by that? Sure. Well, that, that that's um, uh, I don't want you to think I say this to all the podcast hosts, but that but what you say is pleases me very much because it's true. And most people don't recognize that. You know, my intellectual heroes, though I, I'm sitting here with a picture of John Stuart Mill and Harriet Taylor on my desk, the people I read most often and with the most uh, uh, meaning in my life are W.H. Uh, Auden and Samuel Johnson uh, and J.R.R. Tolkien and other people who I think you could def- describe only as Christian fatalists of a yeah. kind. Those are the ones who mean the, mean the most to me. And there are two different ways in and which Niebuhr, I mean, uh, you Niebuhr. must read Niebuhr because there's so much Niebuhr behind. Yes, like I, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that kind of tragic absolutely. vision of his and, uh, Yeah, right. And there, and there are two ways it shows. I think it shows up in the book. One is, is exactly as you say that I try to retune the liberal keyboard a bit to make it about <clears throat> protecting us from damage rather than pushing us forward uh, towards utopia. Uh, the Trump, with the case of Trump, what I want to remind people of is that the idea that there's sort of a kind of vast liberal bulwark that's the norm in the world and that a figure like Trump is the violation of it is exactly false. It's the, exactly the reverse is true. Um, the norm for human societies has always been that there's a boss man, hereditary or uh, uh, bloodthirsty, it's either a Caesar or a, a Louis who's running things and everybody um, has to dance to his tune. And the only way to get him out of office is to go and kill him and put yourself in his place. That's what Shakespeare's great subject is. And it's the great subject of history. And it's a norm, not just in our part of the world, but in pretty much every corner of the world that you go, the chieftain, the emperor, the boss, the general, the generalissimo. So 
when people, I think that's a hugely important point because it reminds us that the liberal institutions that we enjoy and uh, I hope value are incredibly fragile and they're very, very, very uh, recently uh, bloomed. You know, I'd, I'd, to give one example of it, when people talk, for instance, about uh, LBG, uh, and there six more initials have added. My friend, uh, the wonderful comedian Judy Gold, says we have to have gay. Uh, Gay and lesbian people have to put a stop to adding initials. That's got to be the first <laughs> platform, plat, part of the platform. There are enough initials already. But in any case, that we that those rights are protected. And you'll sometimes see leftists saying, you can see how all of those rights now are under assault by the neoliberal order. Well, the truth is they've only ever been protected by the liberal order. They've only ever been protected in human history as legal rights. You're allowed to marry someone. No one can persecute you because you're a sexual minority in very recent years by very specific liberal societies. So in that sense, I want people absolutely to be aware that we live in this tiny pool of light surrounded by these vast uh, oceans of uh, political darkness. But there's another sense you're, in which I think you're exactly right, which is in some ways an even deeper sense. And that is <coughs> one of the one of the core insights of exactly that Augustinian tradition for me exemplified by the great poet W.H. Auden, who who's the namesake of my son, Luke Auden. Oh, is wow. that um, that's his that's his middle name. Is that we are um, uh, our mortality is absolute. And the uh, our ability to improve our lives, no matter how hard we try. Is limited. That's what you no know, Samuel Johnson, the great philosopher and conversationalist, greatest conversationalist there ever was, always emphasizes is that we obsess about party politics. Even in his day, which is sort of pre-democratic, we obsess about party politics and we obsess about governments and the uh, absolute effect they can have on our lives is limited because our lives are governed by the the rules of mortality and by the fact that we're all going to die and by the reality that we have to face that existential crisis. My son, Luke Auden, um, has, and it's been, it's one of the kind of the secret kind of subterranean springs that runs underneath this book, has in recent years, he's doing his PhD in philosophy now. Oh, wow. at, uh, Yeah, at Brandeis uh, nice. University in Boston. He's coming home tonight and I'm for Thanksgiving and I'm thrilled about it. But he's become a Heideggerian. He's, oh, you know, wow. read, yeah, isn't that, isn't that surprising as my kid, but he, yes. you know, he read Heidegger and he was totally turned on by it with all the, you know, the bad political, uh, afflatus, uh, that connects to it exactly because Heidegger seemed to him to put his finger on the essential question. What does it mean to exist? What are we doing here? Rather than on the secondary question, who should pay for healthcare? Now, I'm enough of a million liberal to think that the question of who should pay for healthcare actually makes a huge effect, has a huge impact on the question of how we exist. Because if you're existing in misery with your teeth aching and your, uh, you know, bleeding from your rear end or whatever, you're you, you have a different approach to the existential questions. But I think it's true that liberals become shallow and um, uh, callow to have use the rhyme. Uh, if they neglect this, I give the example in the book. One of my favorite American poets is Katha uh, Pollitt, a wonderful, melancholy, Larkinian poet. And she's also a columnist for the nation, writes uh, extremely well on behalf of feminist causes and progressive causes, which I share. Um, and I asked her once, you know, how do you reconcile the melancholy 
a poetry of mortality that you write with your you know endless uh, uh, polemics for progressive causes. And she answered honestly. She said, you know, it's true. She said, if every single thing that the readers of the nation wanted could be achieved, if we could turn the United States tomorrow into their dream vision of Norway or Sweden or Canada, we would still be left with exactly the same set of fundamental problems that we began with, that the people we love most won't love us, that our children are going to grow up and go away, and that what we are all facing at the end of the day is the horrible black curtain of mortality. And I, I quote Willie Nelson in that book. I once had the huge fun of doing a profile of Willie Nelson, which involves spending a week on his bus in which the, the, <laughs> the smoke, the cloud of you marijuana. Must have, you must have smoked so much weed. Oh my yes, god! I, yeah, I didn't smoke directly, but you know, you didn't have to smoke it directly. It was, a, it was a moving cloud, like one of those things you find in the Pacific Ocean, dense mm. weed. But Willie Nelson said to me when I was reporting this, he said, "You know, the key to my career is," he said, "is that ninety-five percent of the people in the audience are there with their second choice. In other words, that the people that they really wanted to have to love them didn't love them back. And you're never gonna, <laughs> you're never gonna." That's not curable. Liberal politics can't cure it. And if you don't have that core tragic realization of the intractable nature of human circumstances, then I think you, our liberalism risks being uh, narrowly material and unduly shallow. So I think, it's a I very think very long. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think one of the things that questions. you get um, if you have uh, liberalism without that tragic vision. Which to be you know to be grossly essentialist uh, is a, a difference that I find between liberalism on the east coast of North America versus the west coast <laughs> as a broad generalization <laughs> is that I think w without the tragic vision you get health culture you get this idea that I can somehow antioxidant and jog my way into eternal life that if I can just uh, you know it's it's this very which to people who are not who have not drank that Kool-Aid or that yeah. sort of like antioxidant smoothie, it just seems really, really shallow, right? I mean, one of the things I like I, about going to church, at, you know, every every week is that you have this time where, that is outside of normal time where you think about larger things and you have this pause and it you think about sort of mortality and you think about, you know, eternity and you think about, you know, generational issues. And, you know, my, my friends, my, my Muslim friends and my Jewish friends and my, like, they, they say they get the same thing out of going to the mosque or to the temple. It, it's this kind of grounding. I don't think you need religion for it. I think you can find it the way you clearly have in a, in a tragic uh, embracing of a tragic vision. But it's something that, Hardly anybody talks about now, and it's amazing because in the fifties there were like it was know, all anyone talked about. It's all anybody. I mean, that was you know in the sort of the uh, what I think David Brooks rightly refers to as the the high watermark of American nonfiction. In the fifties, there were all these sort of atheists for Niebuhr kind of thing, right? And they they were reading, and they really thought that this was absolutely essential as a kind of ballast for the ship of liberalism, that but, it you know, had to be but, grounded by this. But you know, John, it also worked in the other direction. That is, there was a, in the 50s, there was an incredibly rich uh, presence of liberal Catholics. And that wasn't just Catholics who might occasionally vote Democrat. It was people who had genuine, who were devoted to Roman Catholic ideals, but who were equally devoted to progressive causes. One of my uh, um, 
sort of unknown heroes was a great uh, critic named Wilfred Sheed, who was a devote, came from a liberal Catholic family, a famous one, Sheed and Ward publishing family. And that was his whole um, outlook. And that was the outlook of the Berrigan brothers. That was the outlook of uh, a, a wonderful writer, J.F. Powers, who no one now recalls. That was an incredibly rich vein in American progressivism, was liberal Catholicism. And it's been largely exterminated by the Catholic Church itself now. Um, but it, again, to use your um, image, it created ballast, a ballast of uh, moral gravity for the liberal project. And I think it's whichever way you get it, by secularizing uh, religious philosophy or by um, religious people embracing uh, liberal values, it's, uh, it's, it's essential. And yes, you're absolutely right. It's one of the sort of latent themes in this book. Yeah, well, for all his flaws, um, Justin Trudeau, um, I, you know, I, I've tended to vote for, you know, the NDP, for the Green Party, the Bloc Québécois, pretty much anything. But, you know, but I did for the first time ever, I voted uh, for the Liberal Party. First time in my life, uh, I've never voted, you know, conservative ever, but, uh, but I voted for the Liberal Party. And, you know, despite all of his flaws, I will say that he does still have that that liberal, uh, in the sense that you mean, that liberal temperament. And, you know, I look at what he said after, you know, his first election. He said, I am, you know, I'm going to, even those of you who didn't vote for me, I'm going to be your prime minister and I'm going to fight for you. And he went to Alberta and he's he's done all sorts of things for, for parts of Canada that uh, never voted for him, will never vote for him. And it's based on this idea that, look, I'm supposed to actually represent everybody. And he's done things that have hurt him so much politically because he thought this is the right thing to do. And Barack Obama did that a lot. Um, and that's something that I see. There's more and more this attitude on the right, on the left, on the even to some extent on the center. There's this sort of winner-takes-all attitude. Right? Yeah, I, you know, yeah, absolutely, you know. Um, Obama has become, an, you know, though he's hugely popular with the actual Democratic electorate, has become unpopular with the the vocal progressive electorate, exactly because he saw that exactly as you say as part of as a necessity of the liberal temperament to always take a conciliatory tone, to always try to reach out. He, he was radically rejected time and time again by the Republican Party here, which is in you know much worse shape uh, uh, intellectually than even the conservatives in Canada. But he continued in the in the enterprise. And yes, as you say, I think it's definitional of what the liberal temperament is, is that you perpetually try and do that work of going to Alberta and saying, we don't have horns and we don't have tails. We have just different interests and we have different uh, uh, different traditions. You could add to take a much more controversial figure. You could add Tony Blair to that uh, to that history. You know, Tony Blair now is a, a, a much cursed figure on the British left. But the fact is, Tony Blair won power for the British left for a decade and would, probably would have won more had he not been pushed aside by Gordon Brown. And he ran a progressive government. He ran afoul of the Iraqi war, which was his tragedy. And uh, but nonetheless, those figures are figures of people, and this is the essential point, who actually claim effective power. Justin Trudeau, 
Barack Obama, Tony Blair, to do good to do good work, and they do it on the basis of understanding that they don't have a monopoly on um, on virtue, and they don't have a, a monopoly on truth. And you only have to compare Tony Blair with all of his flaws and the in mistakes that he may have made with Jeremy Corbyn, who is driving the British left now down an abyss of failure and anti-Semitism yeah. to see the difference. Uh, and I fear that, you know, I very much to be blunt with you, I fear that happening in the, uh, on the democratic side here. Uh, uh, I, oh, I, it's I, creeping me out so much. I mean, I'm seeing, I'm seeing anti-Semitism, um, on the, on the left and the right that is, that is not ashamed of itself that will like, you know, bring itself up at a dinner party in a way that I've never seen in my fucking lifetime. It's really, really creepy. It's, it's extremely creepy. It was the, the curse, the poison that you thought had been effectively, um, exercised from, uh, from uh, the body politic to use that horrible, uh, that cliched image. But you, one did think that, and it's clearly, it's alive and well in Britain. It's alive and well in France. And I fear that it's alive on the fringes now. Of the uh, of the American left takes the form of anti-Zionism, so-called, and that's a whole other you know whole other set of questions to to get into. But I do think that that's a you know that you see that pattern, and it's one of the things. And one of the 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 enterprises I was about in this book was to distinguish leftism from liberalism, distinguish leftists from liberals, not in a in a way that you know uh, condemned the. Uh, Leftists to anathema. There have been great figures and uh, remarkable contributions by people who are leftists rather than liberals and critics. But we have different traditions, and we we approach things in different ways. And one of the most significant differences is exactly that um, leftism is exclusive. It it rests on an idea of of purism, and it rests on an idea that somebody has a monopoly on the truth. Some party, some class, some person as a monopoly on the truth, and anyone who dissents from them, even in a moderate way, is deeply suspect and probably a traitor to the cause. And you see that in the in the polemics around um, liberalism right now, a figure as anodyne, admirable maybe, but completely neutral as Pete Buttigieg, is, is constantly attacked as a neo-corporate, neoliberal sellout. The level of vituperation and insult rises in proportion to the inoffensiveness of its object. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is a giveaway about this insidious, toxic business of purism against pragmatism in the practice of progressive politics. There's a mouthful of peas for you. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> well, it, but I, I do mean, think it's true. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the Zionism. I'm sure that that's definitely a factor. But I wonder, just to sort of push back on you a little bit on that, but, like, do you think – it seems to me that quite a bit of the anti-Semitism, or at least on on the left end of things right now, is sort of coming in through the back door through the privilege flap. It's like oh, it's a, yeah. once you once you buy into the idea of privilege as defined um, it, by the by sort of the kind of doctrinaire intersectionalists, it seems that a kind of anti-Semitism sort of because, because the fact is there are certain minority groups han chinese uh hindu south asians mormons um and and jews for instance for sort of prominent examples not the only examples there are certain minorities that are vastly outperforming the general population and there are a lot of interesting reasons for that sociological reasons for that but if you say that 
that sort of by definition, if you take the privilege idea rather than your idea, which is a very sort of Max Weberian sort of idea of, of good fortune, if you say that any time people are punching above their weight, it's because they're cheating the system somehow, doesn't that kind of lead to... I, I don't know. It seems like a lot of the... No, I think the core idea of, uh, you know, there was a good play, and I'm going to forget the author. Shame on me. I was called, I think, Admissions. And in it, there's a kid, a Jewish kid, right, who um, uh, uh, doesn't get into a school or something. I forget the details of it. But ba- then he says at one point, he said, look, after being persecuted for a millennium, um, now, by for being Jewish, now they make us white so they can persecute us again in a new way by calling Jews white. You you give a new license to anti-Semitism, right? Because then you group them with the with the overclass, right? This is the most you know historically persecuted underclass in in European and uh, American civilization. So yeah, I think there's there's a lot in that. I think that that is, after all, the historic uh, pattern of anti-Semitism is exactly to say the Jews have unfair advantages. The Jews are taking an unfair advantage. That's that's always been. The form of anti-Semitism. It's been the form of anti-Semitism even among people I greatly admire, like the Catholic writer G.K. Chesterton. He says, "I have nothing against the Jews if they wouldn't pretend to be Englishmen. They they <laughs> insidiously and they take advantage of us, and then they promote themselves to positions of power and pretend to be just like us." So yes, that is the historic pattern of of uh, of anti-Semitism, and by reducing. Uh, Jews and Irish, and now Asians are white, along with Jews and uh, and and Italians and people who were never uh, considered so. You're absolutely right. That's the ugly side of intersectionalism. There's a positive side of it too, which is that it, when it demands that we look at the the intersections of people's identities in ways that we might have been blind to. I talk about that in the book. You know, when you ask about Anita Hill. And yeah. you say that was, by the way, that was the at that just a perfect example of what I said about your book earlier on. That was I, when you first introduced it. I thought, hmm, what's the best possible example he could give? Oh, maybe Clarence Thomas and Neil Hill. And then, bam, you <laughs> went there. Like it is like the the absolute most compelling example of that, right? That uh, right. That yeah, black civil rights rhetoric wouldn't was not uh, sufficient to explain Anita, Anita Hill's case. Feminist rhetoric was not sufficient to explain Anita Hill's case. You needed the intersection of uh, civil rights, of of minority uh, black uh, rights, and feminism to take it on. That's a helpful. That's a useful thing to keep in mind. And that's you know, that involves uh, sexual minorities intersecting with uh, ethnic and racial minorities and so on. That's a useful tool in our. Uh, in our chest of uh, analysis. So that part of it is, I think, positive. But what I always say is that intersectionalism doesn't go far enough. Each individual stands at the intersection of six or seven, more than that, of countless different social vectors. And each of us is the end result of all those social vectors, not to mention all the, the biological ones that we barely understand. So I think that, that the attempt to, you're quite right to come back to our starting premise here. Anti-Semitism doesn't just feed on anti-Zionism. It also feeds on certain kinds of essentialism, essentially essentially on the, on the kind that attempts to reduce, uh, to homogenize Jewish experience as part of a common overlord white experience. That's, that's clearly false and something to, uh, to be indignant about.
Yeah, and it can it can lead to some strange absurdities. Like I, I remember, this is years ago that Thomas Sowell came out with a, a book, and you know, a lot of my libertarian friends really loved it, and uh, and they they all sort of sent me this. It's it's kind of it's become infamous on you know in right wing circles, but um, it was a review. I, I believe it was in the London uh, Review of Books, and it was a review of Thomas Sowell's book. And it said, uh, well, you know, this is a typical, you know, white male perspective on these issues, <laughs> right? And and not, you know, not recognizing that he's, he's African-American. But you could see how, like, and I've seen that online numerous times where people will assume um, somebody has a particular identity and then, you know, sort of trash them for it. And then they get horribly embarrassed, you know, and they find out that they, they were wrong about this, right? So, I mean, there is... There well, is you know, the of- other side of that, I was going to say the other side of that too, John, is, and of course it's, it's frustrating and, and it makes you indignant to, to have your views ascribed to some narrow uh, uh, class you're imagined to belong to, you know, um, uh, uh, urban Jews. You know, my parents live on a farm outside Campbellford, Ontario, right? <laughs> but I'm always, everyone always assumes I was raised on the Upper West Side, right? And that's where I get all, all of my ideas from, <laughs> you know, the... The the other side, um, the fucking uh, hippies, McGill professors. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, exactly. You know, they're you know McGill professors who live in rural Ontario, yeah. but I'm you know typical, um, uh, you know, fruit of the Upper West Side. The other thing that's always strikes me as odd about it is that most of that the people who practice that kind of assault get their ideas from exactly the kind of dead white males they pretend to despise. In other words, that those are ideas that were originated by Marx, by Foucault, by Adorno, you know, by um, Marcuse. You know, so it's very odd that you have uh, people assaulting uh, other people's ideas because they come from the dubious origins of the white patriarchy, not recognizing that all of those ideas are come out of the white patriarchy. There's never been a more patriarchal thinker than Karl Marx and, uh, you know, never been a more uh, Eurocentric thinker than Michel Foucault and so on. I don't think that that invalidates it. I think that that humanizes it uh, and it, and is part of what it means to be alive is that you have lots of different identities simultaneously. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's there's a basically there's a common sense and you point this out at some point in the book. There's a common sense um, way of thinking about the the intersectional kind of critique and the standpoint critique, which is, you know, it's, it really is just it almost sounds like it should be a Yiddish proverb. Like if a if a shoe salesman is telling you that you need another pair of shoes. Yeah, you should probably take note of the fact that he's a shoe salesman. He he has a vested mm. interest in, in kind of, yes. And now that doesn't mean that you don't need a new pair of shoes. Maybe yes. you do, <laughs> right? But so taking yes. taking into a into account the standpoint of the person who's who's telling you this is not like necessarily like a, a horrible thing, but if you discount somebody because of their standpoint that's a dehumanizing thing right and that i guess it per- yeah yes. and it's and this that's is that's exactly yeah it's exactly my said you should it should be a yiddish proverb just because the <laughs> shoe salesman says to buy another pair doesn't mean your shoes fit or some 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 version of that that's that's a little more um uh succinct but i think that's that's exactly right what's frustrating about all this stuff is, is this is you know Common sense is deprecated now, but what we're saying is common sense. And I think it's the way most people uh, think and react in their actual 
uh, daily existence. You know, it's the way we always respond to other people. We say, oh, Adam is, you know, he's nuts about um, all that stuff about uh, uh, John Stuart Mill and coffee houses. But, you know, he's kind of, it's something interesting to say about intersectionality. It's the way we all, we all talk all the time in our actual intellectual lives about other people. But when we come to um, crystallize those ideas, we tend to become completely unreal about them. We treat um, uh, thinkers that we read on the page as though they were, we expected them to be completely continuous, as though we could, you know, explore them for their crevices and cracks and failures. We're all in, in to go back to our original hero in Leonard Cohen's sense, we're all fallen in that way. And we are all are inconsistent in ourselves and double in lots of ways and cracked. Um, that's where the the real philosophy, the real um, humanism of liberal of liberal thought begins. Well, and liberal thought also is about marriages. And I know you have to meet your wife for holiday shopping. I just noticed the time. Our you have to make our, yeah. <laughs> just to paint the picture, our two children who are away at university, nicely enough, both in the same city, though not at the same school, are taking the bus home tonight. We have not seen them since um, uh, the early part of September. It is completely uh, unusual. We're adjusting to being empty nesters. And so now we are rushing off to get all their favorite foods so they will be waiting for them for Thanksgiving with the full understanding, this is the pathos of parenting, with the full understanding that they will have changed their taste completely and will sort of nod condescendingly, oh, oh I'm so glad you got that pump. I'm not really eating that kind of gluten stuff anymore. Or, you know, we know that everything we get will end up consuming ourselves. But yeah. we feel obligated to do my, it. My wife so and I, me. my wife and I are ex exactly. Well, we're not quite. Our 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 two are sixteen and seventeen, but they oh, are. Wow. They're changing their diets. Um, they've they're both daily. They, they're both vegetarian yeah. now, and they they they're always sort of changing what what I'm supposed to buy yep. and what I'm not allowed to buy. And then sometimes, and it, it, it you know, the other day, my my sixteen year old said to me, he said. Dad, how come you haven't canceled Amazon Prime? And I said, um, what do you mean? <laughs> he goes, he, he said, Amazon's evil. Don't you know that? You're supposed to like, and I was like, oh, God. Like, so, no, I, I, I hear you, but we're not. We're, we're always three moral steps behind our children, and we're bound to be. And the most, I realize this now, John, the most we can hope for from our kids is um, pity and tolerance. That's the top <laughs> that we'll ever get. Because if you think about it, that's kind of the most we give our parents, right? Pity and tolerance, <laughs> well, generation I, I, onto generation. Yeah, and I, but, but I want you to stay married, so I'm going to have to let you go. So, <laughs> right, thank you. I so enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, so I'd love I. to take it up again sometime. It was really a. I, I can't tell you how much I I took pleasure in it. All right, take care. Thanks, Adam. Thank you. Bye bye. bye.